Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So last time, just a bit of review here because we had such a rich Sunday last week. Lots of things going on. We couldn't really cover the whole passage, but last Sunday was Stephen's message. Today is Stephen's martyrdom. And last week, we saw Stephen give a biblical defense of the accusation that he was a blasphemer, that he was blaspheming God, he was blaspheming Moses, the law, and the temple, and he laid out this overview of the Old Testament and God, the God of glory and his dealings with the Old Testament people of God. And he talked about Abraham, talked about Joseph, talked about Moses and David and Solomon. And his overriding point through all of that was that the presence of the Almighty God cannot be contained, cannot be controlled cannot be constrained or confined to a geographic location. So Stephen was called to give account before the council and he actually turns his argument and is actually alleging that they in fact are on the brink of committing blasphemy. That they have not understood God. That they've misunderstood Moses. They've misunderstood the law and the temple. And that really brings us to where we are here. So what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to look at a handful of things, but we're going to see the faith of a young soldier of Jesus in the face of false accusations and really in the face of death. And what we see with Stephen is no fear of man, no fear of anyone, no fear of any threat. And church tradition teaches us that he's probably about 28 years old. Got anybody in here that's 28 years old? close to Kaylee's age here, anybody around 28, he's a young guy. And he hasn't had a whole lot of time to process the resurrection of Jesus, but something was so deep and impactful in the resurrection of Jesus and that impact on the early church there that it set him ablaze. And he was willing in that short window of time to make a stand for Jesus, to not back down, and to give his life. So here we've got this young soldier giving us an example of what it means to be a witness, a martyr. And his name means crown. So it's like the Lord even prophetically chose his name before that he would be crowned with martyrdom and giving his life for Jesus following the great martyr. So look at verse 54 here. The first of a handful of things. One is that the council obviously is furious with this young man. They cannot get him to back down. They've they've laid false accusations. They've brought forth false witnesses, people to stir things up, to bring forth lies, to say this guy is trouble. He's misrepresenting God. He's misinterpreting the law. He's a blasphemer. And so Stephen has brought a message that debunked each one of their alleged allegations against him. And so look at verse 
54. They hear these things, they hear his argument, and they become enraged. So enraged, look at what the text says. They gnash their teeth at him. The word literally means they're sawn in two. They are filled with so much rage. It's like his words have gone right in to their hearts and sawed them in two, and they are filled with anger, and they want to control him, and yet he can't be controlled. Now, we run into weeping and gnashing of teeth in other texts, don't we? This is a familiar thing that we see in the New Testament. In Luke 13, for example, Jesus is talking about those who are outside the kingdom of God. And he says that because they're excluded from the kingdom of God, they're gnashing their teeth. And so Luke is signaling again here, these people are actually putting themselves outside the the kingdom of God, outside the rule and reign of God, and they're beginning to gnash their teeth at Stephen. That's some serious rage filled with this white-hot anger at him. And look at his reaction in the next verse, 55. And I want us to dwell with this, some verbs here. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, what's the next? He gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I really think this is the heart of the whole passage. And this would be a fantastic place to look for some arrow prayers. Can you see one there? Here at All Saints, we talk about arrow prayers. They're little pieces of scripture, little fragments of scripture that we can take and that we can chew on it throughout the day. We can pray it. Do you see some in there? Verse 55, I see several. So this would be over the week, over the course of this week. Young people, this is what I do, I take a walk, I would read a passage like this, and I would take a verse like this, and I would talk to Jesus about it on my walk. And I would say, Jesus, would you give this to me? Whatever Stephen had, would you give it to me? Would you give it to our church? Would you give it to our young people, our young people that are in their 20s? Would you fill us with your spirit? And then what's the next verb? Would you help us gaze into heaven? Help us contemplate. Help us look prayerfully. Help us see your glory. Help us see Jesus at your right hand. Friends, this is the the language of prayer in the Old Testament. Anytime it talked about gazing into heaven. It's what Colt was inviting us into. Lifting your eyes up into heaven. It's really not that difficult. It's really not mystical. It's something that you and I get to practice each day. Did you know that? When you open your Bible, you read a passage of Scripture, you can actually gaze into heaven. You can lift your eyes up and focus your attention on God, on Christ. And it's a discipline. And Stephen has given himself to this discipline. He's been doing this for some time. We're going to see that he's using language here, actually, that's taken from Daniel 7, which lets us know young Stephen has taken 
Daniel 7, and he's used that text to gaze into heaven through prayer, to fix his mind and his heart on the glory of God and on Jesus so that that is what came out in that moment. That was his reflex in this moment of persecution and suffering. He had already been gazing into heaven in his time with the Lord. He had devoted himself to scripture. We've seen that. He was a man of meditation on the word. He had hidden much of it in his heart. Now what we see here is rather interesting. Look at verse 56. We have it introduced here, what's happening. Luke is commenting on it, but then we have a firsthand account from Stephen. And he says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You notice anything interesting there? Jesus, apparently, according to Psalm 110, one and other passages, he ascends to God and he is what? At the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. It's symbolic language that Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he is at the supreme place of authority with God the Father. He's seated at the right hand. The book of Revelation unfolds this in Revelation 4 and 5. God the Almighty is seated on his throne as sovereign over the entire cosmos, over the entire universe, and at his right hand is the lamb, seated, sharing his authority and power. But Stephen is seeing Christ is standing. What do you think might be going on here? Why would he be standing? People have puzzled over this since it was written a couple thousand years, and probably the most compelling answer is that Christ was standing to receive and welcome Stephen, that this moment was so important and precious that Christ stands to receive young Stephen at the Father's right hand. It's pretty startling, isn't it? It's amazing that the eternal Word of God, the Son of God, the God-man, Christ Jesus, would stand to receive him. And it's a vindication. It's Christ standing up and saying, Stephen's message is true, his life is true, and so I'm vindicating his stance right now, his stand for me. Now, the Jewish authorities don't like what they're hearing, but Christ promised this in Luke 12, verse 8. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before others the Son of Man also will acknowledge him before the angels of God. So Christ is acknowledging and welcoming Stephen in this moment. Now I mentioned that at verse 56, he's calling Christ the Son of God. I mean, he's calling him the Son of Man. I mentioned that that was what Daniel called Christ. He saw down the corridor of time and saw the Messiah and called him the Son of Man. And in this vision in Daniel 7, you have the Ancient of Days seated on the throne and you had one like a Son of Man approaching him in great honor and glory. And so Stephen is saying, this is him. The early church says, this is the one who fulfills all of those messianic promises. And I get to see this in heaven. What a stunning moment this is 
And friends, it's in the moment of the most intense persecution that this is happening. I want us to look at this for a moment here. In the moment of the most intense persecution comes the greatest revelation. This is one of those moments where I might not do it the way that God does. You might not either. But this is what Scripture is teaching us. That Stephen is in this furnace moment and heaven opens for him. And he gets to see what is really real. Everything else fades away and he's seeing through a vision what matters most. He sees the glory of God, the radiance of God, the beauty of God. It's interesting, he doesn't say, I saw God in the face of God because we know in Exodus and Numbers that no one can see God and live. So he sees the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing in his right hand. So on one level, this is a unique event, right? Stephen, the first martyr, they call him the proto-martyr, the first martyr in the Christian church and the Christian tradition. And there's only one Stephen, right? There's only one moment like this, and Scripture captures that and gives it to us. And yet, on another level, could there be a principle here that we're seeing? That the text is inviting you and inviting me to look to heaven when the heat is on. So when you are in the vice grip and something is smothering you, some form of suffering that you have the opportunity to look up, to not look down, to not gaze at your belly button, as I call it, to wallow, woe is me, why am I here, I hate this, I don't like this, I don't like God, I'm mad, I'm angry. What if in those moments we actually lift our gaze and we say, you are glorious. And I choose to fix my attention. I choose to fix the gaze of my, my heart on your glory, God. And on the man at your right hand, the Lord Jesus. So there is something that this text teaches us about that. And friends, again, this is a daily practice It's not something that comes naturally necessary, but if we give ourselves to this practice each day, we have the opportunity to open the scriptures, to gaze upon God. Some of us might say, well, I can't do that. That sounds too spiritual. My mind wanders all over the place. Friends, this is available for all of us. Find a way to read the scriptures each day, to pray it out loud. I have all kinds of tricks I use. I already said I go on prayer walks. That's to keep me awake, to keep my mind alert. And I have a scripture with me, sometimes on my phone, sometimes I'll write it down, sometimes I'll have a little tiny portable sword, portable Bible with me, and I just go on that prayer walk and I have arrow prayers and I'm speaking them out loud and when my mind wanders or I start looking down, doing some navel gazing, I go, Lord, I choose in this window of time to look upon you through the words that fill me with your spirit. I was doing it this morning and I was praying for us. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us see the glory of God.
as a church. Help us see the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, at your right hand. Look at verses 57 through 58. It's a third thing. They stone Stephen as this scene unfolds here. Stephen's words were so much, too much for the council and for others. And apparently the text doesn't say, but it seems that some kind of mob is forming. And it could be that they're waiting outside the council and they've had it to hear with Stephen, yet another Christian who's filling Jerusalem with the teaching of Christ. And so the council is fed up and now there's a mob that's formed and they cover their ears, which was something they would do in the Old Testament. If blasphemous words were being spoken, they would cover their ears and what do they do? They rush against him at the end of verse 57. They dragged Stephen outside the city because they couldn't stone him in the city, which was holy ground, so they had to get him outside. And they began to throw stones at him. And they get this from Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. There are certain things that the Jewish people would punish someone. This is capital punishment. They would extinguish their life. And one of them was blasphemy. So they had accused Stephen falsely, of committing blasphemy. And I've got a, an icon up here I wanted us to see. It helps us kind of picture and visualize. You can see on the left there a handful of people holding up their stones. This is Byzantine art, so it might look a little strange to us, but it's rather beautiful. And you've got them holding up these stones, and then you can see Stephen on the far right of the picture there. You see him kneeling in the posture of prayer, and then you see on the upper right, it's kind of difficult to see, but he's seeing into heaven and there's Christ there standing to receive him into heaven. And you can see just above Stephen there, someone holding up a large rock. So this icon, this picture, this sacred art is actually portraying it with great detail. And so when they stone someone, they would take them outside the city and you can see the city wall on the far right. They've taken Stephen out, and they began with a large rock that they would drop on the person, on their chest. And if that didn't kill them outright, then they had other people with large rocks, and they would pelt the person with rocks until they died. And so here we've got this 20-something, this young man who is not renouncing Christ. He's got his attention fixed on the Lord Jesus. And the text gets really interesting here. If you look at verse 58, the end of it, they've dragged him out of the city. They're stoning him. What do the witnesses do? These false witnesses. They take their coats off. Practical here, so they can throw the rocks more freely. It's also symbolic and where do they lay their coats, their garments? At the feet of a young man named Saul. Put that icon back up here and let's see if we can see. You can see Saul in the center of the picture there. So if you've got Stephen there on the right and then go up two people, that is Saul and all the garments are laid at his feet and he's looking with approval. This young man, man named Saul, another young man 
in the picture. And we're reminded in a moment like this, one of the early church fathers named Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And again, we started by saying that we are people of the cross and Christ is, in some sense, the greatest martyr who ever lived, right? He gave witness and Revelation 1 calls him that, the true and faithful witness. He came with the testimony of God, testimony of himself, the gospel of the kingdom, and he shed his own blood. So in some sense, Stephen is looking to Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And we'll talk about that in a minute when the text deals with it. But we're reminded of the words of Jesus in John 12. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain of wheat. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, as the supreme martyr, willingly shed his blood to save sinners and to reform the entire human race through faith in his name. And now you've got Stephen as the first Christian martyr, considering it an honor to die for Christ and to shed his blood as a witness to other sinners, including Saul. So watching Stephen in this moment, watching him die, planted something in Saul's mind and heart. Here he is watching, giving approval to it, fully behind it, but a seed is lodged in Saul. And we'll read later on, we'll see his conversion in chapter 9, but this same person becomes Paul, is renamed, and he'll say this in 1 Timothy 1. Listen to what he says. Even though I, Paul, was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me and the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So this is a holy moment. Because of Stephen and his stand for Christ and his message and his willingness to give his life, it sets something in motion in Saul, in Saul of Tarsus. He couldn't shake it sure it replayed in his mind over and over again. And the Lord used that moment to raise questions, to tenderize his heart. And in fact, the blood of the martyr became the seed of the church that led to the greatest apostle in the New Testament. He wrote three quarters of the New Testament. So I know this is heavy. We're delighted to have the kids in here. Just on that note, we love the noise. We love them running around. We love them to be with us. That's how most Christians are all over the world. They have the kids with them, even in the liturgical churches where they've got those 
moments where it's really quiet. You look in Africa and Asia and other places, the kids are part of it. Can hear them hollering out and maybe even some worship going on. So we love it. Glad that you kids are in here. Key part of our family. Friends, this text, there is a, a, a soberness to it, right? Some of us say, well, I don't think that I'll end up being a martyr someday. So what does this have to say to me? Well, it's the same Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, that lives in you that lived in Stephen. Same Holy Spirit that empowered him, enabled him to do what he did, lives in you and me. And to, in the most excruciating moment, to turn your heart to God in prayer. And you may actually have small opportunities to practice what Stephen did, prayer and love and even forgiveness of your enemies to prepare you for bigger tests and trials. Paul says in his letters, I die daily. He looks at the church and he says, I die daily. And he says, imitate, follow my example. You will have the opportunity to suffer, to follow Jesus in those small moments that feel like small death, and it may in fact prepare you one day to give your life for Jesus. I've said here at this church, I am absolutely committed to teach the scriptures. And part of this message is that, yes, we do die daily, and yes, there are little moments of suffering Moments of persecution where you may be misunderstood, your family might not like you, your friends may turn on you, your colleagues, and there's a moment of death there. This is awful. This is excruciating. But like Stephen, you have the opportunity to imitate Jesus and follow Jesus, even to the point of forgiving those people. As Stephen said, Father, don't hold this against them. So friends, I want us to be a prepared people from the youngest to the oldest. Are you with me on that? So that in the future, if difficult times come for the church, we're ready. Because we've given ourselves to Jesus, we've given ourselves to the word of God, and it prepares us. We don't want to be flat-footed on whatever the future might provide. I've said that I hope we have reprieve. I hope that we and our children have religious freedom in this country, but friends, it may not happen that way. We may experience what they have in other parts of the world, and we may have to make a stand for Jesus, decide in that moment, am I going to renounce my faith? Am I going to buckle? Am I going to conform? Or am I going to, like Stephen, stand and lift my gaze to heaven, and receive whatever the Lord allows to come. I know it's very sobering, but it's the word of God, right? So we give ourselves to it. Look at uh, verse 1, and we'll end with this. We've already seen that Saul is supporting Stephen's murder. He's endorsing it. He approves of it. And we see there at verses 1 and 2 that a severe persecution begins Stephen is the first. Others have been arrested, but he is the first to be put to death. 
So we're going to see Satan trying with all of his might to stamp out the church and the opposite happens. Listen to what John Stott says. He's a, an Anglican commentator who's now with Jesus, but he says this, the devil who lurks behind all persecution of the church has overreached himself. His attack had the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded only in spreading it. So friends, God's sovereign plan and providential care always override satanic attack against the church. Our brothers and sisters in China and Africa, the Middle East, other places testify to this. Why don't we stand? So I'm inviting you this week, invited the church for weeks now to be meditating on, to be praying, to be reading the book of Acts. But specifically this week, I would invite you to take Acts 7, 55, those four things we looked at, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven, seeing the glory of God, and seeing Jesus, the Son of Man, at his right hand, and try praying those arrow prayers through the day. It has a way of refocusing you on what's real and keeping your heart from sin and tenderizing your heart. So Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for the life of Stephen, this young man, this soldier of Jesus. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, even today. Prepare us for all the things that we'll face in the coming days. We love you. We cling to you. We receive your love. Amen.